Native communities around the world are looking for ways to maintain their culture and their language. Meanwhile, some colleges and universities in the U.S. are trying to come to terms with the fact that their campuses are located on what were once tribal lands. The Miamia Center at Miami University is a partnership between the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma and the university, which works to preserve the Miamia culture and language, while also exposing undergraduate and graduate students to those efforts. The center's work is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, Emeritus Professor of Statistics at Miami University. Our guest today is Haley Shea. Shea is a Miami tribal member and a member of the Nipwayoni Acquisition and Assessment Team, studying what leads to positive outcomes within the Miami community. She's published articles on community-engaged scholarship, cultural revitalization to combat cultural trauma, and the impact of media stereotyping on white individuals' perceptions of American Indians. Shea's graduate research focused on identity formation in American Indian youth, the impact of Miami cultural knowledge system on living well within the community, and cross-cultural mental health stigma. Haley, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. You really did your research. <laughs> we tried. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I, I find it's, it's such a daunting question. You know, gee, cultural revitalization. At least mm-hmm. it's something simple. I'm sure that there's... <laughs> <laughs> so, so can you talk just a, just a little bit about, you know, what what is kind of the the start of the big picture when you think about kind of cultural revitalization? What does that mean to you, and what does that look like? Mm-hmm. I mean, unfortunately, that story starts with cultural loss, uh, right? So, very, yeah, yeah. our tribal community lived historically in what is now today known as Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, and parts of Wisconsin, mm. right? And um, our tribe was forcibly removed from those lands uh, to first Kansas and then later to Oklahoma. And throughout that process, we had the literal physical loss of people, but then also we experienced significant cultural loss, right? Because now we were a people living in diaspora across the United States. And each of those three places we have hubs of people, but today we have people in 49 of 50 states and internationally. And that means that we don't have a community-based culture, at least at least in terms of living together in the same space as we once did, right? A village-centric uh, community. And so we don't have all of the opportunities to practice culture as we once did. And our our last speakers of the Miamia language passed away, we think, in the 1950s. Oh. And so from about 1950s to, until the 1990s, we didn't have any speakers, uh, fluent speakers of our language. And so our, our language was considered what we now call sleeping, where we had record of the language in documents, right, from um, missionaries and other folks who documented our language and culture historically. And that is what, you know, Daryl Baldwin, the executive director of the Miamia Center, as well as David Costa, who's our linguist, uh, one of our linguists at the Miamia Center, reconstructed the language from that documentary record, right? And, And that language... You know, I I take this quote from Daryl, so I don't want to to use this as my own, but the language is the most efficient means to communicate cultural knowledge, right? So the the language itself gives us a lot of information about how our people view and historically viewed most things in life, right? It gives us a lot of information about 
our perspectives on the world. And so that's, I guess that's kind of what I think of when I think of cultural revitalization. Since since that time, since the 90s, there has been significant um, revitalization of artwork and of games, you know, both games of chance that we typically played in the wintertime when it was too cold to go outside, as well as games of skill, things like lacrosse, right, that we're playing outdoors. Um, we've revitalized things like uh, stomp dancing and other forms of music and dance, right? So there's a lot of things that have come from that that really help to bring our community together, right? That help us to unite. And we gather formally roughly four times a year, but on, on major occasions twice a year. And we actually just came back this past weekend from our winter gathering. Um, and I, we got to practice all of these things that I was talking about. So... I'm imagining at the winter gathering, you sort of see this very physical evidence of yes. the work of this cultural revitalization. How do you measure those things that aren't as able to be sort of seen and visualized as far as like how it's how well it's it's doing and revitalizing the culture, I guess? Yeah, that's a great question. So our my team. So as you mentioned, I'm part of the Nipwayone Acquisition and Assessment Team, I guess technically the co-chair. <laughs> um we are, our purpose, so I guess backing up a little bit, we were founded in 2012 um, The because the tribal leadership noticed that this cultural and language revitalization was having an impact, right? They saw that it was doing something to the community, but they didn't know what and they didn't know how to get at that. So they went to turn to Daryl and said, we want you to task someone somewhere with figuring this, this out. And so he created the Nipwayona Acquisition and Assessment Team in conjunction with Dr. Susan Mosley Howard. Um, and there were some other folks through educational psychology at the time who helped out. Um, but she she really was the cornerstone of the project at the beginning. And I was a student here at Miami when that, <laughs> when that was going on. So I was actually a subject of this research I'm talking about when I was here. Um, and the team essentially generated four research questions at the start of our work. So we wanted to know how does this language and cultural revitalization impact academic attainment, right? Because we have a group of students on Miami University's campus, um, but we are also interested in academic attainment more broadly, right? Not necessarily just performance in college, but also how do you acquire knowledge in general, right? And then second, health and well-being. Third, we're interested in how it impacts cultural connectedness to one another and engagement. And then fourth, in national and tribal growth and continuance. So those are the four questions that were generated by our research team, but also in conjunction with our tribal leadership, right? These questions came from them, which mm -hmm. is really important for community-engaged scholarship, right, where you are actually doing research that benefits the community that you're working in. You know, I, I find that, that these are, it's really interesting to think about these. F first, when you were talking about kind of the dimensions of culture that you were measuring, and we'd right. love to get back to the, the games of chance with them. So, <laughs> you know, if we're stats and stories, you know, I gotta, I feel like you're, you're lobbing one to the net, so yeah. we'll have to follow up on that. Okay. But, but, uh, but initially, when, when you're talking about things like uh, kind of quantifying cultural impact, yeah. you know, you, you were mentioning things like the, uh, you just said, the academic attainment, you know, the dri tribal growth. But there seems like there's some things that are kind of easier to measure than thinking about well-being mm -hmm. or thinking about kind of this uh, connection, culture mm -hmm. and connection. So, so how do you think about the measurement of, of well-being within this community and, and also then the connection within it? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So historically, we have struggled to mm. measure mm. specifically well-being, right, health and well-being, because the, the existing measures within 
you know, public health or psychology or any of the, you know, any of the fields that are interested in this are I think first and foremost, very deficit-based when it comes mm. to Native communities, mm. right? So what so, I mean say by more that, about that, yeah. yeah, what I mean by that is they they focus on what are the problems within the community, right? So if you mm. look at research for Native communities, it's often diabetes rates, it's suicide oh. rates, it's oh. alcoholism, and how do we measure that so that we can overcome it, right? And that is absolutely important. Mm. At the same time, it's been our experience that that research hasn't really yielded great results, right? Those things have not changed as a result of the research that's been done. And it fits a lot more with our our worldview and our perspective as Miamia people to take an asset-based or a, a strengths-based perspective, right? So looking at what are the strengths of our community, how do we assess or evaluate those things mm. and continue to promote those and make them get better over time uh, with under the assumption that improving those will also improve health at the same time right so it's kind of an indirect route to, to improving health um, you know these these four outcomes that we're interested in if we promote those four things then we assume that that will that will help with uh, health and well-being and so we currently have funding to uh, create a measure of well-being mm. that is Miamia specific. So Daryl Baldwin and I got together for about a year and a half during COVID, you know, the one of those silver linings of COVID. <laughs> we were able, we had the time then to sit down on a weekly basis and start to talk about our experiences and share stories and cultural knowledge with one another about what does it mean as a Miami person specifically to mm -hmm. live well, right? Not just as as an American or as, you know, a global citizen, but as a Miami person specifically, what does it mean to us, right? So Daryl was, I mean, he's, he'd probably, I don't know if he would hate that I say this, but he's an elder. He shares a lot of information. He has a lot more wisdom than I do. So he shared a lot of experiences with me during that process. And we were able to generate um, some ideas of what that looks like, including, right, our physical body distinct from our soul, right? So Miami people view our body and our soul or who we are as different things, um, you know, so that includes our physical body, our spiritual realm. We have a social realm of, of health and well-being. Um, our well-being is inextricably tied to our landscape and our, our ecology. And also, I'm, I'm failing to remember the fifth one. <laughs> uh, no, no worries. Uh, so this sounds like, this sounds like subdomains of a scale that exactly. you were building. So someone yeah. from a psychology background. You're, like you're picking the, up on uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we are currently in the process of working toward, you know, defining each of those so that we can generate items that correspond mm. to each of those mm. different mm. realms um, to, to hopefully someday soon pilot test within our community and, and you know, really rein in those psychometric properties of the scale to eventually roll out to our community. One of the important things for our work also as i as i talk about this is that it has to be useful for our community today mm. right so daryl and i talked talked a lot about the cultural components that came from documentary record that came from our past experiences but a lot of that may or may not fit with our community today because we are a very different community than we once were and our community will continue to change over time and so we recognize that this is a, a longitudinal project this isn't going anywhere and we want it to be useful so this scale you know what it exists as today or in the next year might change over time and so we're kind of open to that that flexibility in our in our measurement 
You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking to Haley Shea, a Miamia tribal member and a member of the Miamia Center at Miami University. What was it like for you as someone who came here as a student, right? You came here as a Miami Heritage student to come back as a researcher and be doing this work. I was just thinking about that as I was reading through your bio and some of your other stuff to prepare for this, like to be a student and exposed to this and then come back must be a really interesting experience. Yeah, I mean, it's everything, right? (laughs) I can back up even more from there. You know, one of the main things that comes out of the Miami Center's work is educational programming for our community. And I actually attended in 2005 the very first Emamuchike program, what at the time was called Ewan Zapata. Well, still is called Ewan Zapata, but we have a larger umbrella term called Emamuchike. So I was, 2005, I would have been 14, and I attended the very first camp that they ever held that came out of a lot of this work that's being done at the Miamia Center, right? So I went to this camp, I attended until I aged out at 16, came back as a counselor, and through that whole process is where I learned that the heritage program was a thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know that it mm-hmm. that it existed until I went to that to that camp. And so the counselors that were there were often Miami University Miami uh. students. And so I was exposed to them, came to Miami to learn more about who I am and what it means to be Miamia, really solidified my identity. And throughout that time, it became evident that one of our very clear and explicit values as a community is to give back, mm. right? And I had been given so much, both from Miami University as part of the, the fee waiver that we receive um, as Heritage Award students, but also from the tribe. The tribe had given me so much in forms of emotional support, monetary support, social support, right? All of these things. And I wanted to, to do something that could give back to to both of those communities. So I talked to Daryl and George Ironstrack at the Miamia Center about what I could do. They encouraged me to do something that I could do on my own that, you know, that could stand alone, but that also might have a pathway back. And as a psychology major, I decided to pursue a counseling psychology PhD and eventually made my way back. So this was this was always my plan hmm. was to come back uh, and and to be able to work in some capacity. But none of us knew what that was going to look like when I left in 2013. Um, And so it's just kind of organically evolved. And I think that's true of most of the work that happens, right? It has to come from the community itself, the people who are interested in doing the work. Um, But there's always a need. No matter what we do, there's always a need for it. So... You know, I, I think it's interesting to, to be involved in, in research that's really kind of resonant with CORE. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, was, uh, I got involved in collaborating with, with colleagues in the Scripps Gerontology Center around, this, around the time my grandmother was in a, nurse, mm. was in a, a nursing home. Yeah. And talking about some of the, the issues there at the same time I was thinking about it from doing research into it was, was both with kind of really, I'm, I'm failing, words are failing me now, which, which Rosemary would said as frequently, <laughs> frequently occurs, but, but it was just, it was real, it was fascinating and it made the research even that much more important to me. Yes. So, so how, you know, for you as someone for whom this is a major part of, of kind of your, your identity is now also mm-hmm. your research. How, how does that play out? Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, in grad school, we always said research is me-search, right? <laughs> we often do work that that impacts us. And that's, you know, because research isn't easy. It's not always fun. So if you're not passionate about it, you're probably going to burn out pretty easily, right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, for me, 
and you know, I'm I'm such a crier, so I really hope that I don't cry right now. But <laughs> for me, it's just there's so much about this work that that just gives back to the community as a whole, mm. right? And I see mm. I can't be a strong person without a strong community. And the community is only as strong as its members, right? So both of those things are true. And so figuring out ways to help promote health and well-being, mm. to me, is everything. Mm. And especially when it comes to, right, like I just had a baby um, in August, the very first day of class. <laughs> Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. And so, you know, I now think about her, right? I've always thought about future generations but it's always been hypothetical until now. And so I want to know how can I promote her identity the best? How can I promote her well-being? And so, you know, this this work is tied both to my own well-being, the well-being of my community, but now to my literal child, right? And it, it was great, like, using the language, right? When she was born, the first thing she heard me say was, I am Indane, my, hi, my daughter. Uh, so here it goes. Uh, it's yours. It's like, I better join you. This is, uh, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> So it's just, it just I don't have any tissues lot. here. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's okay. It's it's not as much of waterworks as it's been in the past, but yeah. it just it means so much to be able to right. I think of it as traversing time, mm-hmm. right? So by using the language, by using the culture, I can connect not only with you know my daughter and with future generations, but also with my ancestors, right? Mm-hmm. Like we have mm-hmm. all used this language, we have all engaged in these cultural practices, and for a long time we weren't able to do that. And so now, through this language revitalization, we are now able to do that again. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, it's really meaningful, yeah. personally. It's really incredible. Yeah. It, it, it is. It, it is. And I, you know, I, I find that um, I, you've, you've talked about the, the, langu- the importance and core component of, of language mm-hmm. as being kind of a starting point for a lot of this revitalization. Mm-hmm. And then the, does, you're, you're, you're now kind of formalizing the study of this. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's dimensions of, of well-being that you're looking at that, and that you've defined some of this for me. But you, you've also mentioned some other, other aspects of this. You've, you've mentioned the, the dance, the game. Mm-hmm. The, so I, I got to ask you to tell us a little bit about the, the game of chance. So, you know, <laughs> as, as, you know, so you, you know, a lot of stat came out of pr, you know probability games. You sure. Know, there's a, there's a reason they talk about Monte Carlo simulations. They talk about the idea of, of probability and s- determining expected values in games. So right. what's what, what's one of the games of chance that, a that game has been of chance? Yeah, so yes. I would say the one that we play maybe the most often is called the moccasin game the moccasin game and it's kind of like the game where you like hide a ball under a cup oh okay and, like, move them around but not really so there are four moccasins today we play with they look little a little like hot pads just because we don't have spare moccasins always lying around and that's kind of gross <laughs> um, but so we use like four they look like hot pads and then there are three there are four marbles or stones one of them is a different color right so there's one person who hides them one under each of them and the other person has to try and find the off-colored stone marble whatever on their third guess Hmm. right so Uh, they're supposed to they if you find it on your first or your fourth guess then you get no points if you find it on your second you get like essentially one point and if you find it on the third you get two points right and so then the first team to a certain number wins Oh, that sounds, that sounds like a you know a great combinatoric assignment for future <laughs> class. <laughs> to, to to calculate yeah. the the probabilities. <laughs> 
I do wonder, you said that, you know, part of the work of the Miami Center has been sort of trying to assess yeah. outcomes. Uh-huh. And it's been working with the heritage students who are here. Yeah. And I wonder if there are things that the Miami Center has learned about what is working for, yeah. for students who are here that's sort of informing practices now. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So... I think the biggest factor, and and this is kind of tied to two of our research questions, right? But the biggest factor that we've seen that promotes success as college students, as Miami students specifically, is feeling a sense of connection to one another, Mm -hmm. right? Finding a place where they feel accepted and they feel connected to people regardless of what else is going on in their life, right? And that's true of everyone on campus, (laughs) right? But with the Miamia community, we have both a kinship tie, right? A literal family tie, as well as like the cultural ties that unite us, right? So that the means through which we go about that connection is just a little bit different than other people. Um, And so, you know, we actually have like to talk about the actual measurement, we have a scale called the Cultural Connectedness Scale. It was created by an author named Snowshoe back in 2015. And they this basically gets at various like traditions and um, identity factors and spirituality factors that make someone feel connected to their community. Um, and we've seen that there is a significant difference in peop- our students' levels of connectedness from pre-test, so b- before they come to Miami University, and compared to their pr- post-test mm-hmm. when they're graduating. So we've seen you know, a significant difference. And this has been across since we've started this in 2017 is when we started using that. And every single year we're seeing this. Oh, that's um, and, you know, I, I experienced that myself because I I honestly don't think I would have stayed at Miami if it weren't for the Miami community. Mm-hmm. I just felt so out of place on campus. Mm. Um, you know, I just felt First of all, I was like really poor compared to everyone that came here. Um, but then also just like my values and my worldview coming from a really rural, small town, just it didn't really jive with your, your average Miami student. And so without the Miami community, I don't think I would have been able to stay here. I wouldn't have thrived. And so that was what really gave me that sense of community and connection to my Miami peers not only made me feel comfortable in Miami or in the Miami space, but it also gave me a little bit more courage to, to, to reach out and like have my own unique identity in other spaces. Right. Mm-hmm. So I joined choirs and I joined various, you know, other social groups that I could be myself in and had had the ability to do that because I had the support of the, the Miami community. Yeah, you know, when you were talking about the the measurement of well-being for yeah. you, sort of uniquely defined for Miami and this community. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm curious what you think about kind of it's it's re, it's generalizability to mm. other communities. I mean, so you're you're kind of targeting and kind of focusing within one community in its development. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you envision it having applicability more broadly? So that's a really good question. And that's actually part. So a, a slant on that is part of our, our grant uh, that we're working okay. on. So. The actual measurement that we're using, we don't think will be necessarily generalizable to okay. other communities. However, we wrote into it that we plan to create a manual that outlines everything we did in the process so that other communities can do the same for themselves, right? Because because these cultural factors are unique to us and other mm. communities have, mm. you know, different cultural factors. There's so many tribal nations and all of them have distinct cultures. And so, you know, it's not necessarily that these 
you know, dimensions that we're creating or the specific items will be applicable, although some of them very well could be. Um, but it's more the process that we use to get here will be pro will okay. be useful for them. Um, and we intend to share with anyone and anyone who wants to, right? And that's even more broadly than just indigenous communities in the U.S., but even indigenous communities throughout the world, right, could use yeah. this, hopefully. <laughs> Before we go, I do wonder if you have advice for people who are not from these communities who want to work with them. We had someone on talking about the work she does on fire research and how when they go and, 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 and study in certain places, they're working with native communities yeah. and trying to sort of triangulate what they learn from the Native community's understanding of fire and how it happens with sort of the more quantitative stuff that they are gathering. Mm -hmm. and, and that just sort of struck me as this moment of like a real beautiful moment of like interconnectedness and collaboration. Yeah. And I wonder, given the work that you've been doing and the, the center has been doing, if you have thoughts on how people who are from outside the community might work with communities like yours to do research that is of benefit. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question because so much of research with indigenous communities has been exploitive over the in the mm. past right and so first and foremost for our community and i think any indigenous community it's all centered around relationship building right so rather than coming in saying here's what i can do for you saying hi i am so and so right like like introducing yourself forming a relationship first mm -hmm. without any sort of agenda <laughs> and then working with that community to determine you know help them or or ask them about what their needs are and then come in with how you can help um because so much of research including the linguistic research that we you know base a lot of our work on was here's my worldview here is my understanding of measurement or statistics or documentation and I'm going to impose that on you um, which just doesn't and hasn't ever really worked for us and so yeah every the the foundation of the best relationships we've formed because there are many across campus and even you know nationally have been because of relationship building right well, that's all the time we have for this episode. Haley, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, this is a you. pleasure. A great chat. Yeah. Thanks. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.